Welcome to FEPS Talks, a podcast series at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, this is Anja Schopek. I'm a Director for Research and Training at uh, FEPS, and it is my honor and pleasure to welcome in the studio Andrew Crowell, Professor of Free University of Amsterdam, Director of Kiss Compass, and a long, long serving member of the FEPS Next Left Research Program. Welcome. How lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Today we are going to discuss uh, the changes when it comes to the trends in the European electorate, but specifically we will look at the recent elections. Of course, Social Democrats are in very good mood after the European elections because the worst prophecies haven't taken place. We are in a much of a better place than we anticipated on. Um, how do you reckon our position actually is when you look at your data? So winning, winning nowadays is when you do better than negative polling, yes. No, I mean, the, the European elections were um, were looking very bleak for the left in general. Um, um, there was an idea that uh, especially the anti-immigrant right would be uh, much larger. Also, the, the liberals or the new liberals like Macron's party would be much larger. And in, in the end, uh, the left sort of did okay. It didn't lose too much. Um, and strategically, that means that there's still the second largest party in Europe. That means that there's still a crucial player in determining policy, uh, uh, getting important positions also in the commission. Uh, and so that matters. It's no longer the case that they can, together with the Christian Democrats, the EPP, determine everything. But you know, it's, that's not, that's not a big deal because uh, a, a little bit broader coalition formation is not a bad thing, either including the Greens or the Liberals in, in policies. Um, so I, I think overall, yeah, that might have put them in a, at least not a negative mood. But of course, the um, uh, the interesting thing is is that the um, individual outcomes in countries were very varied, um, and not all of them won, and not all of them lost. So there are clear, I would say, national factors playing into whether a party lost or won. Exactly. That was uh, to be my next question, because uh, ahead of the European elections, uh, of course, uh, there have been some data available, predictions have been made, but in some countries, social democrats did really, really well. I mean, if we look at uh, Spain, it was the third election in the row, uh, whereby Spanish emerged to be the largest delegation in the European Parliament and have been effectively the ones running the negotiations around the key positions. But also in your own country, the Netherlands, uh, it's a doubling plus in terms of the national delegation. So what are the ingredients of success? Yeah, I think um, when we take these two uh, examples, you can see that in the Netherlands, for example, uh, the country that I'm from uh, myself, there was a clear specific dynamic. So the whole debate during the campaign was about the right and the ultra-right. And the ultra-right challenged the center-right. So our prime minister was debating with all the anti-immigrant populists. And basically the left was not present in those major debates. So imagine national television holds debates only with right-wing leaders. So what happens is that everybody on the left, of course, who is not going to vote for these people, are going to look at who's the alternative. Since none of them are all there, the one that gets most attention, of, of course, was the, the head of the Social Democratic of Europe, which was a Dutch guy in this case. So Frans Timmermans suddenly became this sort of figure on the left that was there, 
uh, I mean, not in the debates all the time, but was there as the alternative. And I think that created a very good uh, dynamic. Uh, it was also on message. The, the, the left kept talking also about taxing the, the companies that basically exploit the uh, open market in Europe. So I think it was a combination of being ignored by traditional media in the debate and then becoming the figure because the, uh, the, the alternative on the left and then having the right message to, um, uh, to left-wing uh, voters. It also helped, of course, that the, um, uh, the, the Green Party was going down in the polls because they failed to basically well, enter government or do anything substantive, even after winning a substantial election victory, rendering the Dutch Social Democrats actually to a small party, right? with only 5% of the seats. In, in, in Spain, it's a totally different story. In Spain, of course, there was a dynamic that um, uh, the Social Democrats were able to oust the right-wing government, so a real victory, right? You, you use a constructive vote of confidence in a, in a parliament to actually become the leader of the country again. Charismatic leader as well. You know, the, the, the guy has uh, uh, the looks and the talk uh, to become... Pedro Sanchez, you mean. Pedro Sanchez. So he, he was basically... Uh, forcing himself on on the national and even the international stage as sort of uh, uh, a winner, and that is never bad, of course, <laughs> in an election cycle that you're seen as the as 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 the winner. Um, and he over he sort of comeback kid, right? He, he he was ousted as leader, and then he came back. So so this was all sort of the winner um, uh, look around him and the feel around him, and that uh, created a very positive uh, vibe. Uh, and again, here it also helped that the left was in tatters because of the Fox arising, but not doing as well. The Pepe basically in, being in deep trouble, the Partido Popular in deep trouble because of internal well, corruption, like uh, amazing corruption up to up to the highest level. Um, um, uh, and and Ciudadanos, the, the other sort of central challenger, which might appeal to also to social democratic centrist voters, um, uh, also uh, basically not knowing what they had to do. In, in fact, they moved too much to the right, which is not at all where their voters are. Their voters are either centrist or centre-left. And so they basically lost... Um, all these right-wing parties were not having a clear message. And the only one that was a clear uh, story and, uh, and had, had this feel of a winner. So, yeah, I, I think uh, very well uh, well done. But, in, you know, in other countries, it was, uh, it was not a good uh, performance. Um, clearly, Britain was maybe better than we thought, uh, but it, it's not a good performance. Uh, Italy, on the other hand, we thought it would go totally sour, uh, and they came in second, also the payday. So, uh, but now they're breaking up after the election. Um, um, so, so it's it's a very mixed bag of effects actually that you see across Europe. It's not like there's a coherent sort of revival of social democracy. You see that social democratic parties and ideas are still very appealing to groups of voters, even large groups of voters. Um, but there needs to be specific circumstances. Um, and so it's very interesting to, to look at what factors contribute to the success of center-left parties. What, where is this, with whom are they coalescing? With whom are they forming coalition? Who are voting for them? And what happens on the other side of the political spectrum in times of polarization? I, and I would say that what happens to the right in that country, in each of the countries, is very important. What happens to the centre-right and particularly also the extreme-right or better, the anti-immigrant populist right, what they do matters for the success of social democracy. So it's not all in our own hands, you can say.
Well, certainly, but once uh, you're bringing that, I think uh, indeed the circumstances have been changing uh, because years and years of complaining about the low turnout, uh, this recent European elections have seen the largest turnout since two decades. Of course, that uh, has been an interesting factor. Uh, and also looking at the, uh, especially now, the uh, protests around uh, climate change, the issues connected with climate strike, where young people go onto the street, uh, quite frequently they have a certain degree of resentment towards established politics, but they are no longer those uh, millennials who were diagnosing before, who were saying, I'm not interested, I'm not going to take part, I'm not going to be voting. They actually, to the contrary, are shouting, you have to go and vote in order to have an influence on the decision. But you've, uh, let's come back uh, for a second to the circumstances and the messages. You put uh, quite of a strong emphasis about Pavelia uh, being on a message, PSOE being on a message. Um, there are also a couple of countries which don't come to the radar because of uh, not a big number of MEPs, but nevertheless performing very well. Because if we look at Lithuania, uh, Latvia, Estonia, to that matter, they actually doubled their representation. I know it's two MEPs, but it's an important step forward. Yeah. Doubling um, is doubling. Uh, doubling is doubling. Mm, but um, wasn't that also the case that the, in the in the countries where the Social Democrats were able to do that was because they had a, a convincing positive message? Um, which brings me to another thing. What is the role of scandal in politics today? <laughs> I mean, uh, we've just now had snap elections in Austria. Uh, yeah. You've mentioned in your last sentence that uh, um, elections are not only about the parties uh, that we are running and supporting, but also what happens elsewhere. What do you think is the role of scandal in today's politics? Well, I think it's very important to, to first note that uh, important, very big, important scandals around party finance and corruption occur in the Conservative Party. Uh, even Boris Johnson is now accused of taking all kinds of money or giving all kinds of money away to people that basically benefit his own personal interests. You see this also in the FPÖ in, uh, in Austria, where the leader was actually seen um, on a, in a video to, uh, to negotiate with uh, what he thought was a Russian-connected oligarch person, <laughs> had to buy national media so that he could win elections. Um, of course, Rajoy uh, in Spain has led a completely corrupt Partido Popular for over a decade, and it's now coming to haunt him. Um, um, also, by the way, the centre-right in uh, in France was in quite a, a big uh, tr trouble over there. So you, you, you see that there's clearly uh, something wrong with, I would say, the centre-right. Now, before we get too excited and too enthusiastic about that, these are also the people that you'd m much rather deal with when you need to make policies in Europe. And so the, basically the centre-left cannot basically do anything without the centre-right unless we have overall majorities. Now, I'd, if you can name one country where you think that in the next election a Labour Party, Social Democrat, will get 50% of the vote plus one, um, I'll, I'll go and, and, and have a look at that election. But I don't think that's going to happen. And so having centre-right, Christian Democratic, but also conservative parties, EPP members, that uh, those that are reliable and are really centre-right, not radical-right, are actually very crucial for us to also implement our policies of, I would say, uh, welfare state arrangements, because they used to support that. I'm not sure how much that is still the case, but we can even even uh, talk to them, at least appeal to them, to their 
I would say, traditional core ideas, especially the Catholic parties, that that have to that have to even because of their their convictions and their history, they have to, of course, defend part of the welfare state um, uh, um, uh, in terms of healthcare, housing, uh, unemployment benefits, um, uh, pension systems, uh, and and also live, uh, living wages. So, so I think um, um, uh, don't cheer too much when the center right completely collapses because. Um, be careful what you cheer for and what might come in place of that, which might not be so much uh, uh, better. Um, um, so, so I think that's that's very important. We we need to um, stay close to the enemies we know, <laughs> because they might not be the worst enemies around. Uh, hey, you don't want hostile takeover of parties like happened to the Conservatives, which basically the anti-Brexit lunatics have taken over that party. Uh, that party is now totally disconnected from what I would call old capital. So they're no longer connected to the national economy. They don't give a shit anymore, basically, what happens in the national economy, right? They're just busy now doing Brexit for their funders, which are partly hedge funds and uh, international banking and finance. Uh, and whatever happens to the country, whatever happens to people's wages and housing and uh, and jobs, uh, they don't seem to care at all anymore. Trump is exactly the same. Uh, so do we want those kinds of structures on the on the right? I, I don't think so. Um, on the other hand, um, um, a, a very positive development, I think, is that Europe has become a real election. I remember studying European election and falling asleep, basically, because it was not about Europe. It was all about national politics. Uh, but since national politics has dripped into national narratives and debates and um, uh, uh, national campaigning, Europe has become an issue. Connected with immigration, connected with austerity, connected with um, well, open market, open borders, uh, markets. So, um, yeah, U- Europe, Europeanization, European collaboration has become an issue, and that impacts then, of course, also on uh, national and also on European election. And that's a good thing because I think social democrats are on the right side of history. They are on the side of history where you think that in order to avoid conflict and also enormous economic hardship in Europe. You need to collaborate together. But of course, Europe is still not the Europe that social democrats would want, I would say. It's still only and partly, uh, not partly, it's it's primarily still a market, an open market space. And as the social pillar or whatever you call it, the the way that I I would say the, the life of people are guaranteed is not at all where we want it uh, uh, to be, uh, uh, I think. So there's a lot of work there to do. Um, um, but I think it's positive that now uh, uh, people see that Europe is a, a political arena where that also needs to happen. That if your country does crazy things, like the Brits are doing now within the Conservative Party, people look towards Europe and you see that the crazier those right-wing parties become and the more anti-European they become, they actually mobilize moderate voters, even from their own former ranks, in order to say, well, Europe might not be ideal, but it ain't totally something you should totally discard and leave immediately. So I think, and you saw that also in our data, that the appreciation of Europe, or at least the necessity of European collaboration, has actually increased in popularity. Um, among younger voters, you're right, it's also not only to basically say, look, livelihoods are dependent on also um, being in this largest market on the globe, 
but they also say look listen large problems like global warming other environmental issues need to be addressed at this uh, supranational level you cannot as the netherlands or belgium or germany or france or italy alone solve these kind of problems certainly not when you're uh, sweden or denmark yeah, right you need a european structure where you can have one voice and you can see that how strong that 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 collaborate voices against the brexit idiots right had the the, the 27 staying together against the brexit crazy is very important i think so it shows the strength also of europe i think the brexit and also um everything that happened around it has actually been very beneficial to show that collaboration works sticking together works you can get stuff done you can you can stop the crazy and you can actually solve huge problems and you can then increase support for this collaboration so um you almost you know, we, should, we should almost be thankful for brexit i would say because it exposed exactly the uh, had the the craziness of the anti-european attitudes this is very interesting because uh, you would uh, suggest on that basis that the nature of both euroscepticism or anti-europeanism versus the uh, pro-European or constructivism when it comes to the pro-European attitudes has uh, largely changed, both because of the British debate and the experience that everyone is having around it, because I think that there is not a single citizen left in Europe who wouldn't have had an opinion about Brexit and the Brexit negotiations this day, <laughs> which contributes to your argument about Europeanization, of course. Um, but at the same time, uh, of course, uh, it also means that what happens on the European level does matter, and not only symbolically, but actually starts interfering in people's life, and people see the differences that Europe can make. Now, you've been talking a bit, uh, a few minutes before, about uh, stick to the enemies that you know, um, because at least you have a strategy and you know what is the uh, coalition in a greater good names uh, uh, practice. But at the same time, just coming back a few minutes uh, before to the uh, question of the European elections, it has been said that the Greens have done predominantly well, that uh, Liberals have gained, but we know that the structure of the Liberal movement have changed. So um, would you perhaps care to give us a few words of comment about uh, those two parties, uh, where they find themselves now? Yeah, well, <clears throat> so let's start with the Greens, because... Um, you would assume that they have the future, right? If there's one issue, if there's one issue really pressing, I don't know how many years we have before our ecosystem is really at a breaking point and we might never ever return to some sort of livable uh, environment on earth. It can't be long because my generation and the one before has basically abused <laughs> uh, the, the environment for their own personal uh, gain and wealth. Um, and we're now putting the burden on, on the younger generation. So that's a very pressing issue in terms of urgency, but also in terms of how it creates, I would say, inequalities between generations. So you would think that the Greens would win this, like, you know, hands tied behind their backs, right? Because they because of they, the context. Yeah, because of the context and because of the issue. And they own that issue. Right? Because social democrats always think they can win by becoming green. They can only lose by being not green, but they can't win being green because everybody on the left basically is green to a certain extent. And most majorities of voters who vote for social democrats are also green and could also vote for a green party so there's not much to gain there we're on the same side on that issue uh, but they own it so green parties environmental parties own it and they should be winning elections two fingers in their nose but they don't so um uh, so that's interesting they gain but they don't really have a breakthrough in some countries like in the netherlands they became the largest party on the left so it happens 
uh, but in many it doesn't. Uh, and so you would think, so what is the future of those two movements? Like the Green Movement, early on, part of the Green Movement has always been in social democracy. Um, but there's, in many countries, also been a separate Green Movement. And I think the coming together of those two is a very important thing. So the, the merger of those two projects, how can you create still social justice under this increasing international capitalism, which creates enormous inequalities uh, and also is about control of large companies, Basically, the control of large companies in terms of environmental pollution and destruction is exactly the same issue. So why are we not, you know, holding hands every day and are totally politically in love with each other? This is a crazy thing because we both want to control large capital for two different reasons. Um, And probably for the same because most people who are green are also lefty. So... um, uh, uh, so that should be this should be, uh, I think, a project to to embrace our green friends, and our green friends to be a little bit nicer to social democrats who they sometimes accuse of being traitors. Well, so I would still argue that the green family is quite diverse inside. There are different attitudes when it comes to growth. And, is the uh, social is social democracy not? Uh, probably <laughs> as well. I mean, we've been talking about national circumstances as well. But since uh, um, we are coming closer, a few words about the liberals as well. Because, yes, sorry. Uh, yes, um, our liberal of friends. Of course, yes. uh, Macron's phenomenon, his attempt to be the leader of Europe. Uh, yeah, um, he's not. You know, <laughs> well, well, in Brexit? Only. In Brexit only. Yeah, so, well, <clears throat> let's go back to liberals. So, in overall, so liberals, first thing of all, for liberals to understand what's happening to these people. Um, so, first of all, they're wrong. In a, in, a, in, a, in a time where market creates high inequalities, their answer is, let's have more market. So, they're wrong. But anyway, they're liberals, so they'll not give that issue up. And they're pro-market. The interesting thing is that they're totally divided. And so basically, there are, there are three types of liberals, I would say. They're social liberals, like Macron, the 66. They're sort of pro-European, but they're also pro-gay marriage. Uh, they're a little bit green as well. So they are sort of the progressive liberal. Uh, let's say they're for an open life and an open market. Uh, and, uh, they're basically liber- liberal and libertarian. Then you have the second ones, uh, the largest group. That is basically, um, I would say, the the free market liberals, but they're a little bit more conservative socially. Uh, those are the larger liberal parties, for example, in the Netherlands, but also the liberal parties in in uh, in Belgium and in Austria, oh, maybe not in Austria, and in uh, Scandinavia, Germany. Uh, so you see that, that that's a second type of party. And then you have the, I would say, the illiberalism within liberals. There are liberal parties, the FPO is one case in point, which are not really liberal, right? They're basically authoritarian parties with a sort of pro-market attitude. And so the fragmentation of the liberals is actually, I think, a good thing for the left. They could exploit that because part of the liberals, especially those social liberals, those liberals slash libertarians, um, um, can actually, I think, become part of this coalition that likes market to create wealth but maybe limit markets and limit capital because it also creates high levels of inequality and pollution. And so if you look at the PD, who is very close to, for example, what, the, what Macron says or what D66 says, there's not much light between the, what, what's a social democratic party in Italy and then two parties in two other countries. There's not so much difference between them if you look at, at what they suggest, especially if you look at Renzi in Italy, for example, who basically is Macron. 
So, um, so I think there's another option. So we have, I would say, a progressive green coalition to form with part of the liberals, part of the greens, a part of the radical left that says, listen, we need to curb markets because only free market is not the way Europe needs to go because it creates enormous inequalities, which creates a lot of anxiety about people's futures. People don't feel that they can they can afford their own lives anymore, let alone the life of their children and the future of their children in terms of education, housing. And we need to, of course, absolutely curb the enormous pollution, which is done by a very, very small number of companies, in particular those who produce energy um, and who we now allow to have a green image, but not really, really changing the way that they do energy production. Um, so, so I think these are very important challenges in part where we need the liberals and partly also our, I would say, Christian democratic friends to, um, to tame the market, to tame international capital. And Europe, I think, is one of the few uh, locations on earth where we can do that experiment. Europe is a beautiful experiment in pulling off sovereignty. Let it also be the beautiful experiment where we can actually, from the left, tame capital and create again, I would say, social capitalism, where you use the market to create wealth, but you use the state and even the supranational state to redistribute and to do good for people. Fantastic, Andre. Thank you so much because it has been an extremely exciting and instructive conversation. Uh, thank you for uh, highlighting so many of the different challenges and how that implies changes inside of the political system between the different political families, but also inside of the political families. I think it was a very interesting uh, message about how important it is to have a constructive agenda in the name of social justice these days and how much people are actually longing to be reassured in their rights for leaving a better future with more opportunities and more equality. As also uh, evidently for us strategically now with all the discussions going on about the important portfolios, social democrats possibly having a chance to have the largest ever representation inside of the commission with 10 quite strategic portfolios, including sustainability, with Franz Timmermans, uh, of course, are going to be looking for the coalitions to also go beyond what has been prognosed as a very fragmented European Parliament. Thank you so much. But before we finish, I would like to ask you to just make a small commercial break by naming the website of Keys Compass so that our listeners can also find the data that you've been mentioning in the program. Okay, well, this is a Dutch <laughs> URL, so it's kieskompas.nl, K-I-E-A-S-K-O-M-P-A-S.nl. I think you should put it on your website, actually. And there you can find uh, the study that we did on uh, on uh, the social democratic electorates in 13 countries uh, and much more information about how, basically, voters think and feel and worry in these uh, in these times. Very instructive, very inspiring and definitely something to consider ahead of the row of elections that we have in Europe continuing from today. Thank you so much for kicking off and having such a splendid inaugurational debate for the podcast. And for everyone, stay tuned. More is to come. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.